Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. On today's episode, we're talking to Jonathan Cranford. He's the author of the book, The Sugar Demons, An Addict's Guide to Conquering Sugar Addiction. Jonathan is a former USA boxing coach and current certified CrossFit trainer. He has over 20 years of experience in the fitness industry. He also has spent that equal amount of time battling his sugar addiction. Today, we cover some of the traps that can lead to disordered eating behaviors in the fitness industry, how he fuels his CrossFit workouts now, some of the unique struggles that men experience with sugar addiction, and his thoughts on alcohol. Jonathan shares his discoveries and strategies that he found critical in breaking the cycle of his sugar addiction, and now he has that feeling of freedom with his food again. There is not one way to recover. Abstinence from the drug is key, but today Jonathan shares his journey about what worked for him. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, welcome. Jonathan Cranford is our guest today, um, and we're just going to jump right in, Jonathan, because we know you're you're busy. It's been a long day, and um, we don't want to keep you too long for sure, but we're super excited because we've both read your book. I have your workbook, and we just really want to know more from you. We want our listeners to hear from you why you think that's so important. So the first question I have for you, though, is can you share your story of sugar addiction with us? You know, what, when, and what was your aha moment in all of that, that you realize that this is possibly what's going on? Can you just kind of give us a brief recap of that story? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, you guys having me on your show. And um, yeah, so I'm i I'm a sugar addict and a binge eater. I've been, I guess, th- about the age of 37 is when I sort of figured it out for myself. The term sugar addiction wasn't really thrown around that much. I don't think back then. Um, that was about six years ago. My aha moment, I can tell you very specifically uh, when this happened, I was staring into my kitchen trash can and I was looking at two empty pints of ice cream. And this was, you know, like Haagen-Dazs or Ben and Jerry's or maybe one of each. I can't remember. I like to switch it up back then. And I was about to cover them with other trash from inside the trash can, the kitchen trash can, you know, to like kind of hide it. So there's already trash in there and you like stuff it way down towards the bottom and cover it up with some trash. And I realized that moment that I was like, wait a minute, you know, this, this is, this isn't normal. You know, like, what are you hiding this from? I mean, why are you hiding this from, you know, your wife and daughter who don't even care that they don't even suspect anything. They don't think you have a problem. They know you, they know exactly how much ice cream you eat. It's never been a problem. They think it's just that you eat a lot of ice cream and, um, and that you're maybe a little bit stingy with it. But beyond that, you know, it's just nobody, nobody cares except you, but you're feeling ashamed of what you're doing because there's this voice in your head that you're finally starting to listen to that says, this isn't normal. This isn't, this isn't what a normal grown man does when he wants to eat the ice cream, you know, like he, he, he doesn't cover his tracks he doesn't hide it. So you know, I realized like, there's like a metaphor there, you know, there's like, you know, you see the addict 
um, on, 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 you know, on television or every, you know, movie or story, you know, and especially like on Lifetime when they're trying to portray addiction, they always show, you know, somebody with, you know, an alcohol problem, they're like passed out next to a dumpster, dumpster or, you know, shooting heroin in some back alley with covered with trash or you know, there's some sort of trash receptacle in the vicinity to be your metaphor for you've reached rock bottom. And for me, it was like my own kitchen trash can. I was like, wait a second, this is stupid. I'm a grown man. I shouldn't be doing this. Something's wrong. And I think it's not just that I like to eat ice cream. It's that I can't say no and I can't stop it. And I'd been struggling with that for a while. And, and to be honest, that wasn't like the first time I'd ever hidden the, tr the, the ice cream in the trash. It was like probably the 20 or 30th time. But it was just that time when I like just one time I can remember. I can even picture the kitchen trash can, what it looks like. I have this perfect image of trash, unfortunately, that I get to live with. Um, for the rest of my life, because that was the moment that I that I realized, like, wait a second, this isn't this isn't what I should be doing. And then I started to do a little bit more research on the sugar addiction stuff. I'd already been doing a ton of research on nutrition and all that for a long time. Um, I was very interested in it. Um, I was I was giving classes on it. I think we'll probably talk about that soon for my for my, my CrossFit gym. You know, and but why was it why was this so difficult for me? You know, that was the that was the moment where it just kind of like all hit me. So I know in your book, you mentioned that you were grew up with a history of being in sports. And I know that you were a former USA boxing coach. Do you think that this uh, role of being an athlete played a relationship with self, body and food growing up? Yeah, particularly sports like wrestling and boxing. You know, you have to be cognizant of your weight. But I wasn't like a person who cared about the number so much, but just that you have to be aware of it. You know, you're, with with amateur boxing, um, it's different than the professional boxing. Like you have to be in your weight class. If you're one pound over, you know that they're not going to let you fight. They might be able to make a fight for you if there's like another athlete that's you know at the same weight class or the higher weight class or whatever that 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 you just got into. If they're available, otherwise that's it. Like your day is over. Your tournament's over. Like you didn't make weight, and they don't let you do like with professional. Where at least when I back when I was competing, and this was 20 years ago now, because um, I was 23 when I stopped you don't get to like weigh in the day before and then spend the next 24 hours, like, you know, regaining the weight. That's what the athletes do now. You know, they dehydrate like crazy and then they rehydrate and eat food and they get, they, they put on a couple of like, you know, 10, 12 pounds before they go back into the ring. Um, in amateur, you weigh in the week before or a couple of days before, depending on the tournament. Um, and then you weigh in the day of again. So it's not really possible you know, and you may fight an hour from then, or you may fight like six or seven hours from that way in, you know, but you're, you're pretty much locked into that weight class. They, they make it very, very, uh, very strict to protect the athletes from, you know, doing dumb stuff, but we did dumb stuff. Like I heard, I, I remember specifically like running 10 miles one time before the golden gloves, spitting into a towel the whole time to dehydrate just to lose a couple of pounds. And you'd see guys like just right before their fight, they'd be like, you know, they'd be jumping rope, skipping rope for like an hour before their weigh in, you know, just nonstop, just trying to shed like one pound so that they could fight. You know, I had people say really, really dumb stuff. Um, at the gym that I coached at, I had a guy tell me one time that he just eats corn all that week to lose the weight because it doesn't, it doesn't uh, digest apparently, or you don't, you don't absorb it. I guess it all just comes out. I never tried that, but uh, I was, <laughs> that was hilarious. So yeah, it influenced me um, as far as body image and all that stuff goes. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to have a certain amount of vanity and a certain amount of hubris to say, you know, I'm going to get in the ring and by myself and I'm going to beat up this other person. Uh, and I'm going to win. I'm going to force my will onto them. And 
you know, you, you either have that or you don't. And, you know, for good or bad, you know, and I would never step into a boxing ring now. I'm older and wiser now, you know, and the only thing better about you, back then I was younger and cuter and that was it. Now it's like, you know, I think about it, like the vanity sort of helped me along the way, you know, as, as far as like, you know, being, you know, having that argument with myself and freaking out about, you know, like, oh, I'm already, start, I'm finally starting to put, you know, fat on or whatever, you know, that, that kind of thing. But the hubris hurt me because I always thought I could just, you know, kind of fight my way through it. So, you know, I thought there were so many times where I would just, you know, I'd, 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 I'd yo-yo so much after, you know, after I, I was in my mid twenties when I started actually having to worry about what I ate. And um, at that time, I don't, I don't think you guys may, may not know, or I, I might've mentioned this in a book, but I, I used to bartend in a gay bar um, with my shirt off. That was like my career through college. Um, that's where I, how I made money. And, and I, and I loved it. It was great, but you really, if you're going to be facing a crowd of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people every weekend with your shirt off, you care about what you look like. And so when that was about, you know, around 23 is when I started to have weight fluctuations and I had to worry about my diet. So I would panic and I would, you know, vanity, I would panic because I am, you know, like, Oh my God, I have to face all these people and I need to look cute or whatever. I mean, it's going to hurt my tips. Plus it just makes me feel, you know, like my self-esteem goes down or whatever. And then, uh, so I would, you know, tighten things up and I would diet really hard to, you know, for what I knew how to do at the time, you know, as far as diet goes, I didn't know anything about nutrition, but I would just eat less and, you know, do whatever the bodybuilder type friends I had did. And then, um, you know, but then the hubris would be once I got the weight down again, you know, I looked the way I wanted to look again, you know, I would be like, oh, well, I'm fine. You know, I can control this. I can handle this now. And the truth is, you know, you can't, you can't do that. You can't keep, that's just a cycle that you get stuck in. And I didn't know that it took me a decade to understand that I was just stuck in this cycle of, okay, I am, you know, I'm just, I'm panicked. I'm going to, you know, cut some of the weight off and then I'm going to just go right back to eating the way that I was, or things would start to creep back into my diet. And it's just, it, it feels ugly after a while. You get really sick of yourself. And like my soul got, I guess, just really, you know, beaten down by it because, you know, at some point you're just sick of yourself. You're like, why can't I just stop doing this? And, you know, and then eventually I figured out that it wasn't, you know, I was staring into a trash can. And I figured out it wasn't just, you know, all about my willpower and it wasn't about me. It was about something else. And I needed to, to deal with that. And I needed to face that demon in a very, you know, in a very real way. So, and that's when I started writing the sugar demons. Yeah, I, uh, I could definitely relate when you were talking about, you know, using the diet pills, the ephedrine, the caffeine, the energy drinks. Like I look back now and I see that was definitely a part of my story about keeping food addiction in check or sugar addiction in check so that I wouldn't eat because I wouldn't feel hungry because I was used to always feeling hungry. And do you think that maybe those were some tools you used to kind of keep hunger at bay? So if we're talking about the, uh, the, the diet pills, yeah, that one is, is it definitely, I knew they were thermogenics because that's what they were marketed as. Um, so I would take them, but honestly, that wasn't really about weight loss. That was, I mean, I, I have ADHD. And so for me to get through college, you know, I started taking them in the mornings, you know, to like get through class. And then I started taking them, you know, like before workouts. And then I was taking them to go bartend at night. You know, like I was at some point I was taking these these pills and they're, you know, they, we call them ECAs is what they used to go by. It stands for ephedra, caffeine and aspirin. And it does raise your metabolism a little bit. I was taking them like, you know, like candy after a while. I mean, I'm talking about for years. And 
I got to the point where even after college, you know, then I was just bartending and, you know, working out and, and then going to work. And so instead of, you know, taking them before class, I was taking them before work. And then I was still, I would take like, you know, some pre-workout before going to the gym. And then I would take more pills that night to 10 bar. And sometimes I was chasing them with like a Red Bull. Like I would take like two or three, you know, HydroxyCut or Ripped Fuel or, you know, Lipodrines, Energine, whatever they were back then. I, I took them all. And um, just because I just pick up whatever was at the store, I knew what it was. They're all the same ingredients, essentially. And they're just under different brand names. So I would, you know, I'd pop those. And then eventually, I think I was about 28 years old when I had my first major panic attack. And that was, that was really, really uh, a, it was shocking to me because I'd never experienced really panic before. You know, I was, and I was in denial about it. I was like, you know, I'm, I don't, Panic. You know, I used to box people. I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't freak out about things for no reason. And the doctors were telling me, you know, you're having a panic attack. And it took like two or three doctors before I finally started believing them. Um, but the, the good thing that came out of that situation was that I, um, I started talking to people about what was happening to me. And I found all these other people, like just within like a day that I, that I knew personally really well that I worked with and that were like, oh yeah, yeah, it happens to me too. And I felt so much better. And I think that, you know, that was a long time ago, long before the sugar, you know, like long before the sugar addiction was something that I faced, but it was just something that like I was able to, to remember and like realize like, oh no, there's a value in talking about what's going on with you. And there's a value in, you know, sharing it with other people and hearing their stories. And that, that helped me a lot, I think. Yeah. So that really just kind of, right. Like it just flushes out like really this foundation that you're kind of working from then when you start writing these pieces. And I think I, I've read some of your blog posts and, and I think somewhere too, you said that the book kind of started with this initial blog post that then kind of had, you know, traction, that kind of thing. And, and if I, if I'm understanding correctly, you know, you are in the CrossFit world. Now you're a trainer in the CrossFit world now. And so having that foundation, having that life experience, has that changed um, the nutrition information that you then kind of share with the clients that you work with? Yes. So CrossFit completely changed uh, my understanding of nutrition because before that I was, you know, it was like I was into the bro science stuff. You know, the guys that I worked out with at the gym, you know, the guys I saw in boxing, the ones that told me to eat corn, <laughs> just there was no real understanding of, of nutrition. I just thought there was sort of. So, and it's not because of CrossFit specifically. Um, I love CrossFit, but it was really like back in 2009 when CrossFit was, when I joined CrossFit um, for the first time as an, uh, just as, a, as an athlete, there were two things that I remember being really popular with the community. And one was those God awful um, Vibram five fingers, those toe shoes. And the other thing was the paleo diet and the paleo diet. Um, that's when I got my first taste of like, wait a minute, there's this other whole concept of nutrition other than, you know, calories in calories out, or, you know, you're either skinny or you're hungry. Um, as, as uh, I guess Gary Tobbs would say, you know, it's, it's, it, it, I started just devouring like the the Paleo Solution podcast from Rob Wolf and Greg Everett, and then I read his book, and then I read you know Dallas and Melissa Hartwig's book, you know, um, and then I read uh, I can't I mean I pretty much every Paleo book that's out there, you know Mark Sisson, um, John Durant, like all of those people. I read all of their books, and then I you know and then I read you know Dr. Michael and Mary Eads Protein Power Life Plan. So I was just like I'm talking about like dozens of books on nutrition. And so I just like sort of became just because I, I was so interested, I was so, you know, just focused on it. 
um, I, I learned so much and I was able to help other people. So then at some point they had me, you know, teaching the nutrition classes at CrossFit and I was helping, I was working one-on-one with people. Um, to be clear, I don't have clients so much now. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a school teacher. I'm too busy to do all that stuff. I just help people for free that I work with. So like all my coworkers, you know, during the pandemic, my, my principal made me like the, um, the corporate wellness person essentially for the school. And I just was, you know, zooming with people and helping them with their diets and stuff. And that's all I do. And I don't charge money for it. It's just something that, you know, I have the time to do it. I can help people, um, you know, for free, but if it becomes like a job for me where I'm like in collecting money and all that, I don't, I don't, I really don't enjoy it as much. So it's more fun for me to do it as a hobby and just to help people that I know than it would be to work with clients. Maybe I will someday. Um, honestly, I doubt it. I'd rather just focus on writing and, you know, uh, and teaching. Do you feel like that athletic culture you talked about before where, you know, it's a matter of getting down to a certain weight, so maybe restriction for a certain period, and then this may have led to like binge eating disorder. I've heard this story a bit before from clients I've worked with in terms of like bikini models or, you know, anyone who has to have a bit of vanity involved in their sport. Do you think this culture can be detrimental to those struggling with food addiction or sugar addiction? Even, you know, you need to fuel eight times a day and you, you're drinking a ton of Gatorade and all these things. Like, do you think these things play into sugar and food addiction in the athletic culture? Yeah, absolutely. They do. If they're, if you have the wrong coaches and the wrong influences, they definitely are. We know so much more now about how to feed athletes, how to fuel athletes, you know, how to eat for competition, all of that stuff. You know, bodybuilding, bodybuilding culture is a little bit different because you have to basically starve yourself. I did do one bodybuilding show one time and it was um, the worst, you know, 12 weeks of my life um, to cut for that. But, you know, it's something that you can you can teach it if you're, if you're doing it right. But if you're just you know coaching athletes to you know, eat a whole bunch or, or just telling them, you know, replenish with whatever carbs you can, they don't have to be good carbs necessarily. They can just be, you know, like you said, Gatorade and sugary stuff, whatever. Um, yeah, I see that a lot with, I mean, I even still see it in, in, in CrossFit, just people who don't know any better and you try to talk to them about it, but you know, they think that, you know, chocolate milk is something that you you know, you have after a workout because you need to replenish your carbs and it's so unnecessary, but at the CrossFit gym that I work at, we, you know, I, we, we're very big on nutrition and it's not me. It's, it's, it's the, the, it's the, the owner and, and the other coaches there. It's, it's really good, but you got to get people interested and you got to meet them where they're at. And it's, it's unfortunate, but like everything around them, everything that they've been taught, you know, up until the point that they get to us is usually just wrong, just, just plain wrong. You know, like you don't have a metabolic window where you can eat whatever you want for two hours after you work out. You know, that's just asking for trouble. You don't have cheat days where you can go crazy. Um, I can tell you that I did have a, I was actually writing a blog post about it right now because you asked me about my aha moment and I've talked about it before, but I haven't told the whole long story and I can't do it here uh, on this podcast. But a part of that story I'll tell you is that I had a guy live on my couch for about six months who was a bodybuilder friend. And he, um, and, and that was when I started doing these epic cheat days because that's what he did. So we were like eating really clean all week long. And then on Sunday we had these just ridiculous cheat days where you would stop off. You'd start the morning doing the paradise pancakes at IHOP or whatever, where it's like unlimited. And then we'd grab a couple, like a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts on the way home. And then you'd have like Mexican food or, or, or burgers and fries with shakes for lunch. And then for dinner, we'd each kill like a pizza, one large pizza each. And then we'd have ice cream after. I mean, it was planned 
debauchery is essentially what it was. And I think back to that time and I didn't look bad. I was doing all right. You know, I was, I was, I was doing okay, but I was like developing this weird eating disorder essentially where I was like white knuckling it for, you know, six days at a time. And then I was just going nuts. And I see the same thing happen in CrossFit gyms when you have a bunch of people do a whole 30. Um, and I have nothing against the whole 30. I think it's awesome. It'll get you out of your sugar addiction. You can then just, you know, maintain something, you know, sort of like that. But you know, the whole idea that this is something that the whole idea of just diet, you know, like people think that they're, people think that, you know, they want to lose weight and they go on a diet, right. Which is fine. But why do most people fail at their diet? You know, we've got like a huge percentage of people right now. It's just after new year's, they're all starting diets right now. And like 90% of them are probably going to fall flat on their faces by, you know, all by now already. I should just look at my watch. Like right now they're already failing at it. Somebody's cheating on their diet right now and you know they're not asking themselves you know why because this shouldn't be that hard it's not the diet that's hard it's the addiction we're not treating the right thing we're saying if you want to lose weight you know you have to diet well that's true you have to change your diet to a certain extent that is true absolutely but you're not going to be able to get there if you don't deal with the underlying addiction first and once we can teach people how to do that and we can talk to them without offending them you know, that's, that's the other thing, you know, trying to get people to address it. That's, that's really tough. I found that to be difficult just talking with, you know, friends and, and clients, you know, they're all in denial, you know, but once you can do that, everything else becomes easy. And then the weight comes off as a side effect of dealing with your addiction, just like it came on as a side effect of dealing with your addiction. So sorry, I got long winded. You can easily just, just not at all. Make that cutting <laughs> motion. To, to no, it's, it's great. So certainly then, you know, in your book and in your workbook, you talk about, you know, that people should cut all forms of sugar, including alcohol. And, you know, it's kind of a two-part question. Why do you think that's so important for food or sugar addicts to do? And do people ever balk at that? Yeah. So anything you say about sugar, you can say about alcohol and vice versa. I mean, they're essentially the same drug to me. I mean, other than outside of like intoxicated driving, you know, the the sugar addiction, I mean, sugar and alcohol will kill you in pretty much the same way. They both kill you via metabolic disease. They both give you fatty liver. You know, they're they're essentially, they're feeding the same pathway, you know, the same dopamine reward pathway, the exact same one that, you know, that's that's the same as your sugar addiction. So, you know, I, I think you can probably get off of alcohol addiction by, and still be eating sugar, but I don't think that you can eat sugar or get off sugar addiction and still drink alcohol because you know it's you're just you're just going to give yourself more cravings later on whereas you can you know alcohol is a little bit different in that you know if you don't if you don't crave alcohol anymore then you know that doesn't necessarily mean that you're you know or if you don't crave if you don't drink alcohol anymore you won't crave it but that doesn't mean you know you're not going to crave sugar and you see it a lot with AA, like a lot of the people who, you know, they, they, they get in their recovery programs and they do really well um, with alcohol addiction. They all sort of become, you know, addicted to cookies and donuts and, you know, sugary coffee for, at the meetings and all that. And that's fine. You know, they're probably saving their lives in the short term, um, but then you got to deal with that other thing too. And that's the sugar addiction. So, yeah, I don't think it's, I, but to answer that, the I don't think it's good. I don't think the clients should be drinking alcohol. It should be considered, and it's in my book, considered sugar. You know, I put it in there as, hey, this is sugar too. You know, it's the same thing. It's identical to a processed carbohydrate. 
So when they push back, like if you get feedback on the book or like when you're just giving this free advice that you like to give and they push back, I mean, do you, do you explain it just like that? Listen, this is liquid sugar and I see it as the same thing or do you approach it differently? Yeah. I mean, I try to be as gentle as possible. I've gotten better over the years. I used to be real preachy, you know, when, when I was like new to, to it and figuring it out and, you know, like learning about it and, and learned about myself and I wanted everybody to know, and I thought I had all the answers. Um, but you can't approach people like that. Um, but, you know, you also learn that there's two kinds of people. There's just, you know, the people that are sick of themselves like I was, and they're just ready to not be in that place anymore. And they don't balk at anything. You know, they're they're ready to make a change. They'll change everything in their diet. And they may not be super successful right away. They're still going to have relapses. They're still going to make mistakes. But they're ready to really start changing. And then you've got the people who just aren't there yet. And they're going to balk at, balk at anything because they want any excuse they can to just keep on doing what they're doing. Cause you know, that's, that's the addiction, you know, that they're not, they're not, they're not in that place that they haven't hit rock bottom. They're not staring into their kitchen trash can yet. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, definitely what you're speaking to is what we know as addiction transfer or addiction interaction disorder. When you're talking about, uh, you know, the people who go off alcohol and switch to sugar, and sometimes you go off sugar and you switch to shopping or relationships or gaming or, you know, screen time, whatever that may be. So it's definitely something that we have to approach gently when uh, we're working with individuals in terms of allowing them to see how it's happening more. And it's that dopamine reward pathway that you spoke to that they're seeking a quick fix from. So we have read that you estimate about one in three Americans are suffering with sugar addiction. If you could plant a seed for anyone who may not be aware they're dealing with the sugar demons, what would you say? I would say that if I would say to them, if you're struggling with staying on your diet, if eating clean is hard for you, then you need to ask yourself the question, why is this so hard? That is the big question because it's not supposed to be. It's not because Oreos are amazing. They're not. Okay. They're really not. You know, I, I've, I have eaten all of them. I can tell you, I've sat down and eaten the, thir- the entire 36 Oreos that is, it comes in a regular standard pack, the entire 48 that comes in a family pack. Trust me. I know it's not that they're amazing. I sat there and ate them because they're really, really good at producing a dopamine response. That's really what it is. And that's what you're chasing. It's not that if you can't picture your life without it, you know, I remember being at a point where I was like, well, I can't picture my life without ice cream. It's really just, it's not that. I mean, your life is honestly so much better without those things. And once you have control of it, your life is just better, period. It's so much better than, you know, a a piece of processed food. So, you know, it, it would just be that, you know, you got to ask yourself and be honest with yourself about, you know, why is this difficult for you? It should be easy. It's just food. Absolutely. So then that brings up and, and, and you kind of already answered this question, but I'm going to ask it in a different way. Maybe a little dive a little deeper is, you know, you recently released the workbook. You've had the book out for a little while. You have the Facebook group. Do you end up ever like coaching some of those individuals through, you know, getting off the sugar or anything like that? And if you do, like, what approach do you take? Well, so anybody who contacts me, really, I try to help, you know, like if somebody is, you know, reaching out to me over Facebook or Twitter or something, you know, I'll give them some advice. I'm not just like, you know, hey, go buy my book. You know, I will, I will talk with them usually. Um, I hope I don't get like a million like friend requests now of people that, you know, want me to, to help them through this. But, you know, my system's pretty basic because, I'm not some genius, you know, I just sort of, you know, came up with this, you know, way to keep myself 
from falling down so much. And, you know, I, but if I was, if I was going to, you know, work with somebody, I would just take them through the process that, you know, I took myself through, which is just, you know, one track your cravings, you know, they're, they're not as random as you think they are. They are very, very predictable for the most part. Um, there's always a trigger associated with them and you can really easily backtrack and find that stuff out. Um, and then, you know, the second part is, you know, you need to have a plan for your cravings. Once you can track them, you know, when they're going to show up, just have a plan built around them. And then after that, it's just all about controlling your food environment. And, you know, your food environment is just the landscape of food choices that you have around you on any given moment. So I'm at home right now, you know, down the street, there's a couple fast food restaurants. Um, there's a grocery store. Um, you know, there's, there's a few things and there's what I have here at home. And, you know, you, you have to remember that you're human and you're always going to follow the path of least resistance. So if the path of least resistance is right there next to you in your home, then that's, you know, that's the, that's the best option. You know, if you have to travel and go out somewhere for lunch, you know, from work or whatever, don't think in your head, like I spent so many mornings where I like, I would eat a good breakfast. I'm pretty good at breakfast, even when I wasn't, you know, doing well with sugar breakfast is really, it was always easy for me. And then I would just tell myself, I would be like, yeah, well, so for lunch, I'll just go off to, you know, this barbecue restaurant and I'll get some, you know, uh, grilled chicken or whatever, and maybe a salad. And then, you know, but then you know, work is stressful and, you know, a couple of things happen before you, you know, for the day that stress you out and you have, you know, some deadline or something that has to get done. And then, you know, and then you get, and then you, it's lunchtime and you're like, oh my God, thank God. And then you, you know, you get in your car and you're driving there and then there's traffic and that's even more stressful and you're on a time limit now and you got to get back to work. So by the time you get there, you know, all that willpower and strength that you had is just more like, no, just, I'm so stressed. Just give me, you know, instead of, you know, grilled chicken or whatever, you're ordering, you know, like a whole bat rack of, you know, barbecued ribs with, you know, sweet barbecue sauce on it. And, you know, or maybe you're doing like some loaded baked potato with, you know, just a bunch of stuff on there that you don't need, or you don't even, you do what I did all the time, which was you end up in a, in a, a, a drive through a fast food restaurant and you end up with a burger and a shake. When I totally said I was going to go somewhere else that morning, you know, it's like the path of least resistance changes throughout the day. So, you know, you really need to control that food environment um, and not trust yourself because you can't trust yourself. Uh, if there's anything I've learned, you know, it's like, just don't rely on willpower. It's not there for you. You know, it's, it's very finite. And so you still have to use a little bit of willpower to, you know, stay home and eat what you're supposed to, or, you know, prepare um, for, you know, for your, your cravings like you're supposed to, but you can't rely on it to, for those, for those big moments when you're stressed, cause it's going to come at you at that time. You've got to be ready. Yeah, I think you touch on this for sure when you start talking about your method of aim and some ways that people can implement these things into their recovery. So could you share with us what are the principles of aim and you know how people at home can implement these strategies in their life? Yeah, well, aim, I just, I came up with that for the portion after you reach what I call the promised land, which the promised land is like the first, you know, 15, 20 days where you're just kind of struggling to get out of the real strong craving phase. And then once you're out of that phase, it's all about maintaining that, you know, being able to stay where the cravings are real quiet, you know, the, the sugar demons sort of, you know, they, they get quieter, they get smaller or whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. Um, but then, you know, it's not like your disease just went away. It's just, it's just quieter now and it's more manageable. Willpower actually works now a little bit better um, at this point. So you're, so you're cruising, but Here's the thing. Once you get into that area, and I and it took me a while because I, you know, I had I relapsed a bunch of times while I was figuring this stuff out and I was sorting this stuff out over the two-year process of writing this. A lot of times, even when you're you're stronger like that, 
when you're in that good place, the sugar demons always come even to this day when I get like a moment to breathe. Like when I get that moment to like, I get home from work, you know, it's been a long day. I get to sit down on the couch. I'm like, okay, I can breathe now and I can watch Netflix or whatever. And I immediately want to get something to, you know, like to, to snack on or something. That's when it just comes back. And so the, the aim principle was just like, here, just need to organize your life a little bit because you can't have too much of that downtime necessarily, you know, so you need some activity in your life, something to kind of be passionate about to keep you going. And the activity is the first, you know, the, the first ac- a part of the acronym, you know, AIM, A-I-M. So A is for activity. Um, it doesn't have to be physical activity. Obviously, I tend towards that because of CrossFit and stuff. But anything that, that gets you interested, anything that, you know, that you're, you know, any, any hobby that you like doing, it just it has to be something that you enjoy. Um, you know, that could be photography, that could be, you know, walking your dogs, that could be, you know, volunteer work, you know, whatever. It's just something that you do that, you know, you can, you can put there. So you make sure you do it every day or, you know, um, at least a little bit of, you know, it every day if you can. And then the um, isolation avoidance, that's just really important because you need accountability in your life. And, you know, so you need the people around you. Getting isolated is just asking your sugar demons to talk to you. That's all it is, you know, so um, I know it's really hard over the pandemic. So I made it a point to reach out to a couple people just to text them and call them and be like, hey, how you doing? Check on them. I'm really bad about that. I'm an introvert by nature. Um, so I have to like make myself contact my friends. I'm that friend that like, you know, you can always just call and we can talk to like we're, we're still good. Even if we haven't talked for like two years, you know, it's fine. Um, but I shouldn't really go that long without talking to those people. And, but I, but I can easily do that. So I have to force myself to, you know, to not be isolated. And also, you know, I was reading um, Johan Hari's Chasing the Scream um, at the time when I was writing this and a fabulous book, by the way, I mean, I can't recommend it enough. And he said he, his best line was, um, you know, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. You know, when you're disconnected from people, that's why you have all these problems. You know, it, it's not, it gets to the deeper root of the problem. You know, we don't have a sugar addiction because we just, you know, we got addicted chemically to the sugar. We have a sugar addiction because we had something that was missing inside of us, some, some, you know, some disconnection from the other people in, around us or in our lives that was hurting us. And so we started filling that hole with sugar or whatever, whatever drug, you know, of, of your choice. And then we got chemically addicted. So you know, you've got to, you know, make sure that you're maintaining those relationships uh, in your life. Um, and just, you know, sometimes you've got to schedule that, you know, sometimes you've got to just write in, you know, in your journal or whatever that you need to keep you occupied, uh, to keep you on, on task or, or focus, you know, contact so-and-so today, you know, at least once a week, you know, call somebody, whatever, um, hopefully more than that. But yeah, so that's isolation avoidance part of it. And then mindfulness, Mindfulness is just, uh, I think it's really important period nowadays, you know, we're just constantly distracted. We're constantly filling that dopamine, uh, or we're constantly soothing that dopamine pathway with, you know, Netflix, video games, what else, our phones, you know, the, um, you know, it's not one addiction, it's, 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 it's so many. And so mindfulness is a dopamine deprivation state. And that's what you need to at least, you know, give you some strength to to, you know, long-term to, you know, so you don't just fall into all these addictions. Um, I'm going to name another person's book. And this one's funny. Um, you know, the comedian Russell Brand, he wrote an amazing book called freedom from our addictions. And it is, and first of all, he's hilarious. And he writes, I mean, I'm so jealous. He writes like better than, than you could even imagine. 
And he, uh, but you know, it, it's not just about one thing. It's about, you know, once you get past the sugar stuff and you're in the promised land after those two, you know, three weeks, you know, let's get to what this is all about because something's going to go in and fill that addiction no matter what, you know, it's going to, you're going to want to, you know, hammer that dopamine pathway. You're just drawn to it. It's natural. It's, it's, it's who you are, your brain. That's your brain working correctly. It's going for the stuff that gives you dopamine because that's a survival mechanism. So if you're addicted to something, you know, it's not because your brain is working incorrectly. It's because your brain's working the way it's supposed to. So you have to manage that now in a, an environment where dopamine has become extremely easy to get, you know, dopamine is cheap now. And, um, but you can, you know, dopamine's cheap, but it's, it's kind of coming at the expense of other things in your life that are going to make you happy. Uh, so you've got to give yourself some dopamine deprivation states to, you know, kind of combat that. So you're not so constantly addicted and you don't always have to be seeking something. And that's what it is, is, you know, you can, you can learn to not be seeking something all the time and learn to be in the moment. And that's where that comes in. And it's, 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 people talk about mindfulness and, you know, I heard it for the longest time and I thought it was just so like eye rolling kind of thing. I'd be like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'm not going to meditate, dude. But now I realize like how important it is because it's just, it's, it's fixing your operating system. And that's super, super important. Otherwise you're, you're, if all you practice is constantly seeking distraction, then that's all you're ever going to be able to do. And mindfulness teaches you to not be doing that, to teach you to be in the moment and to be aware of what's going on in that moment. And just to be okay to be quiet and be in that moment, in that conversation, giving that person or that, that student your 100% full attention, you know, the, your partner, whatever, you know, like to be able to be there with them in, in the moment. And, uh, you know, I found that very, very difficult to do while I was addicted to sugar. And I still have, I still struggle with it. You know, my wife will tell you, it's, it's not always easy to be, you know, in the moment with somebody hundred uh, percent of the time, but I try and, you know, I gotta get better at it. And the mindfulness really helps with that. So any kind of, you know, like any kind of meditation where you're just, you know, you're not, you're focusing on sort of just watching your thoughts go by. Um, you know, I don't have a specific one I subscribe to. I just, I use the Headspace app. That's a good one for me. I don't have to think about it. And it teaches you. It's real easy. I just noticed that Netflix has a Headspace show now that like that, that, that teaches you how to meditate so i mean there's no excuse now I mean, you can get it you know pretty much any way so if you don't know how to do it there's you can just there's free stuff online netflix has something now you can pay for headspace you know uh, but it's something you should definitely get into your life and um sooner rather than later you know get, get over the sugar addiction for sure that's that's step one but you know start a meditation practice it definitely helps you out a lot yeah, absolutely. And obviously our listeners can't see us, but Clarissa and I are like emphatically just nodding our heads at everything you have to say, because, you know, you're just, you're right on the money. Everything you're saying are things that we've said to our clients along the way. And it's just always nice to have it from another person, another perspective, and to know that, you know, you're another voice out there, like spreading the message that these are very important things. And speaking of importance in your book, you mentioned like one of the steps that you talk about is recruiting allies and you even emphasize readers, you must not skip this step. So mm -hmm. can you speak more to the importance of this and, and why you're like, yeah, do not skip this? Yeah, but because it goes to the isolation avoidance thing. Um, but early on, that's part of the, um, the super better chapter. And that's unfortunately, that's the chapter that I get like, I, I got like a bad review because of it when I thought that it was like, you know, I, I think it's really important, but you know, people thought it was woo woo. 
but it's really, you know, I was just taking, you know, some stuff I learned from Jay McDonagall's Super Better, which is, you know, kind of gamifying this, 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 this fight that you're having, this, this addiction recovery thing. And uh, part of it was to recruit allies. Part of her advice was to recruit allies. And, you know, that's a great idea. Like you said, you know, there's, there's value in talking to people about what you're going through, people that you trust. There's a good chance that they're going through it too. Um, so a very good chance if it's sugar addiction. And then, you know, there's some accountability there. You can talk to them. Letting other people know also forces you a little bit to, to be, you know, on the spot to, you know, not want to fail because then you feel like you're failing other people. And then, you know, again, it's, you know, you're just, you're, you're forming more of a connection with somebody because you're, you're telling them that, you know, you're telling them, you're sharing something with them that's very personal and, um, and you just build a stronger connection. So I, I think it's very valuable to do that. Um, it's not always easy. Uh, depends on, you know, you have to definitely be pick the right people because some people, you know, might not, they might make fun of you or they might, I found with sugar addiction, especially uh, people get really defensive around me because they're like, it sort of like holds up a mirror to what they're going through. And, you know, I assure them like, like, I'm not judging. I don't, I don't do that. You know, I don't even really, you know, I just talk about me. I don't say anything to them about, you know, their situation, but they just automatically start volunteering you know, well, I'm, you know, I, I, I need to get off sugar too, but I'm not an addict, you know, or they get real, you know, there's like a, a dissonance there. And, you know, you just want to pick that friend of yours that you can share it with that's not going to get defensive and that's going to just be supportive. So that definitely, you know, you don't want to skip that step, but you got to pick the right people too. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that that's so important. And uh, we're part of a huge Facebook group that has, you know, over 12,000 individuals struggling with food addiction, sugar addiction. And I think a lot of people can find their allies in that. And of course, like in the recovery world, there's the 12-step groups and a lot of people find their connection and their people in there too. So I couldn't agree more that having the right allies is so important for your recovery. Now, what do you think are some of the mistakes that some people make when trying to follow your map to conquering sugar addiction? Right. So I think the first one in the first in the first phase, the tracking phase, where I tell people to to keep track of their their cravings. The one thing is people need to remember that weekend cravings are different than cravings you have during the week when you're more scheduled, and they happen for different reasons. And some people just want to rush into you know making their plan and and you know, fighting their sugar addiction, that's fine. But you really, really need to keep track of when these cravings are happening and why. Um, then, you know, you can do that as you go also. It's fine. It's, it's your recovery. You do it how you want to. But, you know, if you skip it and, you know, you then all of a sudden, you know, the weekend comes and you end up eating food that you shouldn't be eating, you end up eating sugar, then it's because you didn't, you didn't prepare for that. So a lot of people, you know, they'll kind of rush into it and they'll skip maybe the tracking phase and not realize how important that is. I've seen that before. The other other thing I can think of is just the um, the it's the thing that everybody struggles with when you know they create a plan, but then they don't really follow through with it. You know, you've got a meal prep, you've got to do you know whatever you have to be prepared for, and you know sometimes life just gets in the way and they don't do it or they don't get to that phase. Um, I guess you know I do just think of one now is that you know that's going to happen occasionally from time to time or it may happen in the beginning. That doesn't mean it didn't work for you and you have to give up you know, it didn't relapse is going to happen. You know, I don't know how many times I yo-yoed and relapsed and all that through the whole process, but, you know, I just kind of kept at it. And, you know, now it's, it's been, I guess, you know, going on five years where I've been in control, complete control 
of it. So, you know, it, it, you might bounce around for, you know, a year or so. It's, it depends on your level of addiction, I guess. I know everybody's is different, but don't give up too early. Make sure, you know, you follow through with all the tracking and make sure you, you, you follow the steps and actually be prepared to control your food environment. Because if you don't, then there's, there's no way to, you're going to be stuck with willpower and that doesn't work and it hasn't worked. So. Absolutely. I think that's, I think you're right on the money. I think we see the same, the same things with, with the people that we work with. Like if, if there's going to be some sort of trip up, it's going to be in those areas. And then it's, and then when it's so early on and then we like slash the other three tires because one went flat and just give up and I'll start again Monday or I'll start again next year, you know, <laughs> whatever that might be. So what do you think our listeners can do right now today that would be beneficial to their sugar addiction or fighting their sugar demons being in recovery? Like what can they do today at home right now? They're listening to us, that kind of thing. What, what would be your advice? I mean, I always start with the first thing, which is just track your cravings. That's the main thing I, I, you know, that, because even if that's all you do, then you at least learn something about yourself. You know, you learn that, okay, I am a creature of, of habit. I form patterns just like other people do. Um, just like every, you know, other creature on the planet does, you learn something, you know, that that's, and that's valuable. You really do, you know, you really do get something out of it, I, I would say. So that's what, that would be my main thing is just, you know, track your cravings and see what you find out about yourself. Now you recently released a sugar demons workbook, and I think this would be beneficial to the listeners to help track their cravings, but how else do our listeners find you and the materials you've created? Okay. So the only place you can get the books is on Amazon. Uh, so amazon.com and pretty much every country, um, but it's only in English, unfortunately. Um, so if you're an English speaker in you know pretty much any country that Amazon serves, you can, you can get it on amazon.com. Uh, both the books, The Sugar Demons, uh, An Addict's Guide to Conquering Sugar Addiction, which is the book I wrote. Um, it does have the uh, the two main benefits of that book are, one, it's short, and two, it's not boring. Um, so, you know, you can pick that one up. And then the other workbook is just the base, you know, just what you need to do. Here's the points, you know, one, two, and three. Here's how you get through it. And uh, also on Amazon.com. And then as far as like just finding me on social media, I am at, on Twitter at jmoneycranford. That is at jmoneycranford. And then I am on um, Instagram, which is at crandiva, C-R-A-N-D-I-V-A. So Instagram at crandiva. And then we do have a, a group online called, I think our Facebook group is called the Sugar Demons, uh, or no, so Sugar Addiction Group, Kill the Sugar Demons, is it? So if you look for just Sugar Addiction Group, Kill the Sugar Demons, you can join us on there. And um, that's where you find me. Thank you. Okay. So it's time for our signature question. <laughs> if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar demons or sugar addiction or sugar addiction recovery, what would it be? So my younger self, I tell myself the same thing I tell everybody who's struggling, which is this isn't about willpower. You're not weak or morally flawed just because you can't say no to sugar. This is a math problem. Like you need to organize your life in such a way that you rely on willpower as little as possible for X amount of days until the sugar demons go quiet and you're back in the driver's seat. That's exactly what I would tell myself. And I wish I could do it. Uh, 20 years ago, so I didn't have to yo-yo for, you know, over a decade. But that's what I'm telling everybody now, and I uh, hope they listen and hope it does them some good. 
Thank you so much, Jonathan. That's an amazing answer to that question. And we're so grateful for you to have come on the show today. And uh, we look forward to meeting your dog after the show. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I can't <laughs> my Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.